Let's open in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and to look at your word and just help us to understand who we are in you and that you've done great things for us. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to be looking at what this one titles Brethren or Becoming Part of a New Family. Uh, starting in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15, and we're going to read through 19. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the might of his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. All right, so we're going to talk about God making us brothers with Christ, or, you know, brothers or sister, family with Christ, you know, child, you know. And the first thing is that when we see this verse is that we have a family. And this is one of the reasons, we've talked about this, is one of the reasons Satan hates families and marriage is because all of it is a relationship and a picture of, of our relationship with God. And so when he can destroy a family, he can destroy that picture of God. And we've talked about it before, you know, God says he's our father. And there are a lot of people that when they hear the word father, the first thing they think of is, I don't want a father. I know what a father is like, whether it's physical abuse or sexual abuse or distance or, or not caring. And they look and they say, well, and Satan's done a good job of destroying fathers. And, you know, and I've been there. I've seen people that have, you know, especially girls, you know, they either really love their dad or there's this distance from their dad depending on how he treated them. And the same thing with guys, you know, but especially with girls I see it because that's a lot of the, you know, sexual abuse and everything that goes with them. And, and Satan is trying to destroy that. Then he tries to destroy the, the husband and wife relationship, you know, picture. And we're seeing that in our day and age where they're trying to redefine marriage. You know, and this is beyond all what Satan has done to already destroy, you know, the actual picture of marriage. Now he's trying to, re, you know, redefine it. And, uh, you know, so all of this is going on and, and we're, we have a family. And the picture of God's family is the perfect family, which I know none of us have had a perfect family. None of us. Uh, some of us have had better families than others. Uh, but nobody has a perfect family. But God is there, and he's saying we are brother, uh, we are related to Jesus. We are, you know, he says brethren, but he means brothers and daughters in this case. And this whole idea that we have a new name. You know, and this is really going, what he's saying. He says that we, uh, for this cause, for whom we, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And we've talked a few times about the power of a name. Okay, when the Bible uses the word name, uses the word name, it's talking about all of the reputation of that name. Uh, and I've shared with you, my dad used to tell us, you know, your wells is, and that means that you're a hard worker. You, you know, people, people can respect. And each one of us can probably think what our parents told us. We're bringers. You know what your name means. You know it's. You know, that you were, you know, and we also know people in, in, in towns where their name basically means they're mud. <laughs> you know, the town drunk, the, the town druggy, the, the town thief, the, you know, the lazy person that if you hired them, you're not getting any work out of them. Uh, you know, so you can have a negative name as well. And God is saying, I'm putting you in a place where you have a new name. The name of God placed on us. And when you really think about that, you know, when my dad was telling me you have a name, he was saying you need to live up to that name. You know, and for some people it's to live down their name. <laughs> you know, if it's a negative name, they need to work at, you know, you know, working it down and living above their name. But we have a name put on us, the name of Christ, which means we do have some expectations. Now, the world's expectations for Christ's name is totally, you know, absurd because they expect us to be perfect and you know and I think they don't expect us to be perfect but it makes a good excuse for them when they see us make a mistake and that does bring shame to the name not hopefully not a name that you know a, a shame that's going to keep it forever in that person's eyes but it makes a makes an impact when they see a Christian who's angry and mean to everybody 
They look at that person and say, well, is that what a Christian's supposed to be? And they know that's not what a Christian's supposed to be. Uh, if they see a Christian who's a thief or, or a dishonest person, they look and say, that's not what a Christian's supposed to be. And if they see that type of witness, it's not good. Uh, it's been said that, you know, there's four Gospels in the Bible and then one that everybody actually reads, and that's the Christian's life. We represent Christ. We're an epistle to the world, a book we show people who God is. And so the question is, how well do we do that? And again, we go back to, we've been talking a lot about this, it's not me living his life. And we go back to last week, you know, the, the baptism, it's him changing who I am, and he lives through me. And when I allow that, a good name is shown. <laughs> if I don't allow that, I'm going to fail. And I can guarantee you, each, you know, each one of us in this room, but I know that I'm going to fail. You know, probably each day I'm going to fail. And I want, I, and I've been around long enough, I live a fairly good life for God, but I still make lots and lots of mistakes. And I want people to see Christ in me, and I don't want them to see the mistakes. And that's what Jesus is saying, we've got a name. We've got a new family. And we talked about that back when we talked about adoption, how you get that new name. A lot of these things as we talked about are, are just kind of reiterating the same point over and over. But it's good that we do because it's hammering home this information. And he says he's given us a name. He says that he would grant you according to the riches of glory to be strengthened with the might of his spirit in the inner man. We have riches. Not necessarily riches like the world thinks, you know, lots of money and, and, and everything, but he gives us the riches of peace. He gives us the riches of understanding. He gives us the riches of discernment. And sometimes he'll even give us riches when, we, when we're honoring him. You know, uh, and it's amazing, you know, Amy was sharing with me, but I've heard this over and over. You give your tithe and you really can't afford it, then God turns around and gives you back something to cover your bills or or gives you a, a gift that, that was more than what you gave. But God gives us the riches as long as we're trying to honor him and live for him. And he strengthens us. I love this, that he strengthens us on our inner man. He helps us get through our problems as long as we are hiding in him. We seek refuge in him. We hide in him, he's changing us, and he gives us strength to do things. And sometimes he gives us strength to do things that we never thought we'd be able to do. We're looking at it and saying, there's just no way I could ever do whatever it is. And then you find yourself being strengthened by God and doing just what it is you said you could never do. Uh, and I've met people that I could never go out and do soul winning on the street, and the next thing you know, they're out sharing the gospel with people. I could never teach a Bible study and God gets some teaching a Bible study or I could never work with children or, or with senior adults or you know whatever the term might be that you would never do and God gives you the strength to do it and I'm not saying all those things are what everybody's called to do but God gives you the strength to do what he wants you to do and sometimes it's just stepping out. I've listened to a lot of pastors and they say the best thing you want to do is just try things and see what it is that God's called you to do. And I basically agree with that. We've got to go out and try things and say, well, no, I, I tried working with kids for a couple weeks. I just can't want to work with kids. They're not my gift, but I can clean the church or I can do the parking, you know, whatever it might be. This week you teach. Next week you teach. Next week I teach. Next week Rao teach. And we each had a chance to teach. I go, oh, no. What am I going to teach on? And God's led me to what to teach you know so I did a little about you know half hour ten minute study whatever and I, I figured out something that I could talk for half an hour of, of things you know and, and I turned out to do the job you know like you said I, I got the strength to do it through God and the Holy Spirit and I was scared at first but then I you know you got over it doing the Sunday school thing yeah. you're doing a great job it just kind of gets you, you got over the Fear, yeah, doubt and worry. God gave me the strength. Overcome by confidence, trust, and faith. Well, as God as God does it, you you know He works through you, and you get that much confidence. And you, the only thing you have to be careful of is that you never take that confidence in yourself cocky. and get cocky, I'm and then God will, God will let you fall. Or, or so. I, I thought you know I was 
stand, you like, you're supposed to look at everybody like they're naked. You know, you're her down. You know, you yeah. And then they'll laugh. Or you're naked. You know, or Everyone yeah. in the audience is sitting on the toilet. Hmm. I've never, I've never had to do those. I've heard those types of things. I had stage fright, I've never so I, I, I was studied into how to get over. Well, see, I, I was big in speech. I had the accordion. high school, college. Oh, were you? Yeah. I had accordion, so I could I have the accordion speech. in front of the audience. My that mother was my just had a little class anyway. in high school. I take was speech. God that gave me really the strength good. to do the things like yeah. you're saying. You know, I was scared at first, but she. No was, athletic ability, but I guess she had a crowd makeup story. I never could do that. This girl talked me <laughs> over and through it, you know. She said, just get out there and do it, you know. And I don't have to tell jokes or anything, but just go in there and make it on the teaching, you know. Verse 17, that, that he strengthens the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. Christ dwells in us and we're rooted in love. We're rooted in love. And you think about that. If we're truly rooted in love, then love should be proceeding out of us, and that's exactly what we're told in, in 1 John. You know, if we know, if we love not, we, are, we don't know God. And if we love God, we're no, we, we're, you know, we, we serve by his love. And this is important. When, when I see people claim to be Christians, it's one thing if they're brand new and they're still learning love. But when I see some, a Christian who's been a Christian for years, and they're not speaking in love, they're not acting in love, that bothers me. <laughs> because if Christ is truly indwelling us, then love should be what flows out of us. And I'm not saying we're always going to be loving because we have that fleshly nature and we're going to, we're going to be you know, upset at times, but we, you know what I'm talking about. This you know? We've all met people who seem to have no love in them at all. They're just harsh all the time. They're harsh. Their language is coarse. Their language is hard. There's a hard-heartedness about them. And God is saying that we should have that softness of love flowing out of us. And it should be flowing out of us all the time, but we are fleshly beings, and every once in a while things will get on our nerves and we'll, we'll be unloving. But the question is, are you generally loving? Do you mostly love people? And we, and we can hear that when people talk about other people or put other people down. That's not a good place to be. We need to be able to say, I love this person, I'm going to pray for them. They say rumors are always true. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not gossip, but you hear a rumor that this guy's going to get, one guy's going to get fired when they bring another guy in. The rumors are usually true. I would say most rumors have a basis in, in truth, depending on how long they've been walking around the, the town. <laughs> yeah, really. Or the business or the place. Uh, usually something starts by the time it gets to the other end of town, that's completely Right. Telephone. Yeah, the, the old telephone game. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when people repeat things, there's just this natural tendency to want to add, add to it and spice it up a little bit. And, and before long, the, the truth of it is gone. The CEO is the last to know. He's the one who's going to hit the can. And they hire bring but, in some young guy. But it really is important for us that we build people up. We love them. And you know there won't you won't be gossiping about somebody if you truly love that person. You're not gonna you're not gonna be trying to pull them down if you truly love them because it's not worth it. And Christians have the a really easy way of, of being gossipy. They they call it asking for prayer requests and giving you all the details that you don't need to know about praying for this person. Yeah, really. You know, so and so needs prayer because. <laughs> And ten minutes later, they've told you all the gossip they want to tell you about that person. But pray for them; they really need it. And we got to be careful about that. They used to say, "Flattery will get you everywhere." Yeah, you got to be very careful on that. Compliment, but don't be too overcomplimentary or, or flattering too much. Well, you know they're lying, <laughs> or they're trying to get something out of you. And and I've said this many times: we want to build people up, but we want it to be a true, true statement. There's no, there's nothing worse than to have somebody building you up who doesn't know anything about you, and yeah, you know, and it, nothing is true. It doesn't mean anything. Not false. And so we want to be very careful that what we give is true comments to people and say, you know, I love the way that you are faithful to church, or you know, just make sure it's a true statement. Because I had, a, I had a pastor one time go to me, and this was a large church, and. And I was very faithful to the church, and the, and the pastor goes, well, I like what you're doing for the church. And I, and I turned around and asked him, what am I doing for the church? Right. Yeah. yeah. Because I knew he didn't know, and it bugged me. 
it you know I knew what I was doing at the church and what I was you know where I was working and the areas that I worked in but I was absolutely sure that he didn't because uh, I wasn't that important in the in a church of two thousand people to be glittering to be known it's called glittering generalities of, of things that he thought he knew of you or it was just he was being he was trying to practice you know up, up, uplifting and, and edifying but you know yeah. edification means nothing if somebody doesn't know what it is they're talking about right. Right. Uh, you know flattery of somebody which is the false praise is not good um, and so you know we want to be strengthened we want to be walking in and it says that and it says that we are able to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth the length the depth and the heights of God's love. Have you ever contemplated God's love and tried to figure out how big it was? This one covers all directions. How, how thick, how long, how tall, and how, and how deep. You know, it's all directions. And he's saying that we can comprehend God's love. I don't know if you've ever sat there and tried to comprehend God's love. And I think God's love is bigger now than I did five years ago, and I thought it was bigger five years ago than I did ten years ago, and you know, go all the way back to when I first got to know God over 40 years ago. I realize how big His love is always bigger than whatever I count, whatever I think it is. You know, and this is the one thing I'm learning more and more about God. Whatever I think about God, He's bigger than. He's bigger than anything that I can comprehend. He's all powerful. Now that in and of itself is, is a word, but he's infinitely more powerful than anything I can think of. And I have a pretty powerful God that I think of. He's more loving than I think. He's more omnipresent than I think. He's more, you know, everything I know about him, he's bigger than anything that I know because he's infinite. He has an infinite amount of love for us. And I don't know if anybody's ever tried to con comprehend infinity. <laughs> I don't spend a lot of time trying to comprehend infinity. It's just bigger than anything I can think of. And that's about where I leave it because I don't, I don't have a great imagination. But whatever you think of as infinity, add to it. And it's more. And that's God. That's his love. His love is so great that he created man knowing that we were going to fall and knowing that Jesus would have to go and pay the price. I can't comprehend of that kind of love. I've said that many, many, many times. If I was God, I never would have created man knowing that he was going to fail because the cost was so high to buy, it, buy us back. And I sat down and tried to figure out, you know, God, what is it that you're getting from, from this? Because this is, this is a fantastic amount of love that he has for us to, to pay that price. And God doesn't need anything, and yet he did this. You know, and, you know, and we can't attribute a need to him because he's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. And yet man was created for some reason. You know, and it's hard to imagine. Hard to imagine what was going on. But he gives us this love. And he says, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And that's just what we're talking about. We can't even comprehend his love. We can't comprehend why. We can't comprehend what it is. And, and then it says that we might be filled with the fullness of God. Now in Greek, this word is pleroma. And it means to be overly filled. So we're to be overly filled with the fullness of God in our life. And this is a picture of everywhere we go, God should be splashing out of us. <laughs> like a fountain. just Everywhere we go, people are being, being splashed by God. And I talked about the, one, of my, one of my businesses that I worked in because I was the manager and I had an area supervisor who never swore and cussed in my store. And I never told him he couldn't. I never chastised him for, for his language. He just never did it. And I know a lot of that was because God filled my store because I was there and other Christians were there that our, his presence was in that store. And it affects you. You know when you're in God's presence. You feel it. I've had times when I've gone to meetings, and you know, especially business meetings, when I didn't want to be there in the first place. And I'm going, God, I need to find some Christians in here because I don't want to hang out, especially on the, the, the first night, which was the get-together and, and get to know one another. And I'm going, I don't want to be with all these guys that are getting drunk. 
God, show me who the Christians uh, are. Chamber of Commerce meetings. We I've been invited to that. I, I drank then, so I thought, wow, this is cool. I know, me too. I used to like to go to them, but now that I don't drink, I see what you mean. You, you look for the Christian people because I have to drive home, and I want to make a good impression with my boss. I didn't want to become a someone dribbling drunk or say something stupid. Yeah. So I would I would uh, look presentable and not drink too much. I drink a little uh, non-alcoholic or beer or... or Pretend to drink the drink and not <laughs> drink. You know, you just take a sip. Yeah. But it was these were the meetings you had to be at sometimes. Like, oh God, I just want to find Christians, and within minutes, God would would direct me to Christians, and we'd have a great time talking about God and the Word and our testimonies and whatever else it was we talked about for the hour or so that we had to be at these meetings, and and then I would get out as quick as possible from the meetings because I didn't need to be, you know, around all these people, and it never ceased to fail that they wanted to get drunk. You know, and but God with His fullness, the idea that when we're with people, do they know that they're with a Christian, with us speaking or not speaking? Do they know? Maybe they don't know that we're a Christian, but do they know there's something different? God is being splashed around; He's overflowing through us. We're so full of Him that He's overflowing to everybody. And I hope you've had that experience where you've just come. And I, I can tell pretty quickly sometimes when I'm talking to somebody, they don't even have to talk about God, and yet the Spirit ministers that this is another person, this is another person full of God, splashing out God all over the place. And you end up talking, and then you, sure enough, you start talking about God, and, and there's that witness on together. God is there. He wants us to be full. So full of Him that He's what splashes out. Not me, not who I am, but He is splashing out all over the place. And we all need that. It's not just the leaders. It's just not the teachers. It's not the pastors. Every one of us need to be filled with God so much that when people come into our presence, they're going, there's something different about that person. And that is key for us. There's something different. Not that they're perfect, not that they're, you know, that, but there's something different around them. You know, they don't want to hear the gossip. They're not, they're not listening. Or, you know, like in your case, if you're the person you had to leave, you're, you're not there to hear all the foul language and, and everything that goes on. And people can get convicted by that. And when they get convicted, there's one of two things they do. They either do more of it to be as offensive as possible, or they get convicted and stop doing it. And it can go either way. And I've seen both ways. And... But God is the one flowing out of us. In everything we do, he flows out because we are so full of him to the point of being overflowing. And people see that. And, it, you know, they may start teasing people at first, you know, or, oh, you're, you're just one of those Christians, you're a goody two-shoes, you're, you're too good for the rest of us. But if they really see a true life walking for God, they take notice. It may bother them, they may tease you about it, but if you stay around them long enough, the very first time they have a really big problem that doesn't seem to be solved by anybody, who's the very first person they start going to? Is that Christian that they've been teasing that's so different than them, who seems to have some answers? Called weirdo, and then they come to me for help. Well, because they know they're looking for that person who's different. And when when you look around and you're having a problem and everybody you know is just like you, and they don't they don't have any more answers than you do, you're going to go look at that Christian who seems to have some answers. You know, I've been asked many times, why do you smile all the time? Now, I don't really think that I smile all the time, but obviously it's been the case that I smile most of the time because people always ask me, why do you smile? You know, how can you be this happy? You know, and people, people think that's weird because they're not happy. They're, they're overrun by all that's going on in their life. The pressures just overwhelm them. And as a Christian, we are able to live above the problems because we're securing Christ. We're, re- we're in a refuge of Christ. We're, he's our stronghold. He's the one taking the, the, the storm. And we can be smiling and happy and in the midst of the storm. And people, that impresses people. They think it's weird, but yeah, they... They think, what kind of meds are they on here? <laughs> what kind of medication are you on that makes you so happy? Yeah. I'm on God. <laughs> Yeah, and I got the cop cut, haircut. You know, they think I'm a cop, but I'm not. I'm a Christian. I'm not a cop. I'm a Christian. Close, close thing there. But but we want it. We want to be able to do this kind of thing and just show Christ. And most of that is because we are His family. 
being in a family is kind of an interesting thing because it goes back to where Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You're born into a new family, and you learn to grow into that family. You know, every one of us, when I talk about a family name, you know, it's just that people say it over and over. This is what our family does. This is how we act. This is how we are. Uh, when we do work, we do it well. Or when we do, you know, in whatever it is that we do, we do it well. And you learn it from your family. We're in the family of God. We learn to walk like him by being around other members of the family, being around the word of God, having our mind changed and renewed. And then all of a sudden we just start acting like the family because I've been around it so much. You know, the old, the old saying, birds of a feather flock together. Well, that's why we come together as Christians, so that we can learn from each other, that we can learn, maybe even be rebuked once in a while when somebody starts, you know, talking about something. No, no, you're, you know, we're not, we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear the rumors. We want to pray for them. Or, or, man, you know what God has done. And we just start, we get excited about God, and we, and we share it with one another. And all of a sudden, we start becoming like the people around us. The, in the Old Testament, it's told that the people that worship idols became like the idols they worshipped. Okay, and we don't really comprehend that because we don't understand fully. But when they they worshipped Astaroth, it was a fertility god. Part of the part of the actions were sex acts and everything was part of their worship, and that made them more and more lascivious and and fornicators and adulterers. Yeah, so Isis is a female. Uh, but what you call it? Fertility god. Fertility god of a female. But, you know, she wasn't more like she was a god, though. Uh, take, uh, and then, I think, fertility. And these idiots now have taken their, their name of fertility because they fornicated and had a lot of people like that. But that's our gig is to, to multiply. But you got to understand, though, ISIS is. We're supposed to multiply. I mean, to, to what do you call it? Uh, yeah. Be together, multiply, kid, have kids. Yeah. But you got to remember, ISIS is not named after the god, the god of fertility. It is the Islamic, the Islamic state is what it represents. That's it's I'm an acronym for for the Islamic state. Oh, I didn't. They know. would, they, the Muslims would have nothing to do with adultery and fornication because that's against their religion. So that's what. So it has uh, nothing to do with the. For, it, it has, yeah, their their statement, their use of it has nothing to do it's with an fertility. Acronym. It's an acronym for something oh, to do Islamic with the Islamic State, State in, Syria. in Syria. Yeah. Wow. So it has nothing to do with the fertility god. Oh, it is. It's okay. an acronym for who they are. Islamic uh, State. And they're just trying to bring back the Ottoman Empire or Muslim rule of the world. Islamic State in Syria. In Syria. Which is why they're now starting to take IS rather than ISIS because they're trying to be that whole region, not just Syria. So they're now becoming more of IS. Islamic State in general, and they're working on rebuilding the Ottoman Empire. So, yeah, I can't believe World War One was the war to end all wars. We're gonna have another one. But uh, we're gonna have another one. Okay, we're gonna look at Hebrews two. Thank you Amy, for that one. I did, You're welcome. I had no idea. I just meant that. We were studying the wrong direction on ISIS. Yeah. <laughs> Now. Yeah, they will never have. They would never have anything to do with the fertility god. That would be. Well, they got a lot of people. Before James, after Ty Timothy. Hebrews two. Further back. Further back this way. Yep, toward the back of the book. All right. Okay. <laughs> Hebrews, Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom all things and by whom all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, "We, I will declare my name unto my brethren in the midst of my church, I will sing praise unto you. God is building a family. Jesus is building a family. And I love this. He says that 
to make the uh, to make many sons unto glory. And this is children, not just sons. And Jesus, God in heaven, became man. Now, this is this is a really interesting thing to think of. The God of the universe, the all-powerful God, came down and became man. Not only did he become a man, he became a defenseless child. Now the stories are full. All through mythology, there's stories all over the place of the gods coming down and, and pretending to be men. But none of them in any of the stories ever comes as a defenseless child. They always come down as adults, whether it's male or female. They come down as adults with all their power intact. Like Lucifer. Huh? Like Satan. Oh, he was cast down. Was I'm talking about mythological ones. Zeus, Zeus, uh, Thor, you know, take your pick. Any of, the, any of the mythological gods, when they come to Earth, and they always do, because it's part of the deception of the story of Jesus, they come down as adults. Jesus comes down and becomes a defenseless child, a fully God-man. 100% God, 100% God, which makes no mathematical sense, but it is what it is. He is 100% God, 100% man. He's not 50% of each. He is fully man, fully God. And again, it's not mathematical. We can't comprehend it, but it is what it is. And this is one of the... The picture of Jesus is one of those things that we know that, that the Bible is teaching us something that is, is not man-made. Because the myths teach of the gods coming down as men. Okay, The Bible talks about him, the full God, full man coming down. Talks about a trilo trilogy, which we can't comprehend. And I've said over and over, I can teach you every verse that shows that there is a trilogy. I can show you every verse that, that explains it. And when you get done, you're not going to understand it any better than when we first started. You're just going to know that the Bible teaches it. And we can't comprehend it. The, the idea of a trilogy is something we cannot in any way comprehend. And this has been true down through the centuries. Every writer of, in, from Christian texts all the way from the first century A.D. to the present have said, we don't understand it. And there's been some brilliant minds putting their minds to trying to understand the trilogy. It's something man could never have comprehended. The, the idea that God is omnipresent, all-powerful, is something we truly can't comprehend. Because in the mythologies, the gods always can be tricked. You can always trick the gods in the mythology, and that's the, the mythology is always about them being tricked. God can't be tricked, because he knows everything. He knows your thoughts before you even speak. So we have a God who's above anything man comes to think of. And Jesus came down to this earth to be made a man and die. His whole plan on coming was to die. And that's hard to, that's hard to fathom. You know, it's hard to fathom. You know, how much power did he have? He had infinite power, and yet he didn't have infinite power. He, he, he divested himself of some of his deity and power and put it in the Father. He had to learn to depend on the Father just like any man would. And yet, he was the God who could command nature and command sickness, command demons as he listened to the Father and worked. And then he died. And he tasted death, and it says, for by the grace of God should taste death for every man. When he became sin on that cross, he was the one that tasted death for us. He became sin. Not just a little bit of sin. He became all the sin from the beginning of time to the end of time. All sin was placed upon him on the cross. That is amazing. How do we know that he took the sin upon himself? Number one, the Father turned his back on him when he became sin. But number two is we look at this study in Exodus and Leviticus and we look at the sacrifices that are a picture of Jesus and how the sins were, you placed your hand upon the, the animal and you spoke your sins over the animal's head and the animal symbolically took the sin upon the animal. Jesus didn't symbolically take the sin upon himself. He literally 
took the sin upon himself. What's that Indian guy, the one that uh, comes as a baby? He's a child, uh, Dolly. Dolly Long. Dolly Long is another. He, he's kind of a child thing that comes back and he knows he's the Dolly. Yeah, that's rare. That's all about reincarnation and, yeah. and everything, so there's not. But he's got the child thing, you know, going where he's, he knows he's the one and all this baloney. I, I don't know. Believe it or not, but kind of, Satan, uh, Satan is working on Satan is always doing counterfeits, counterfeits. yeah, that's it. and always has done counterfeits. And this is why you look at the Babylonian religion, and it's a huge counterfeit of Jesus when you get right down to it because it has the mother of the unit, the, the mother of the universe, having a child who is who is conceived through through a virgin birth who essentially dies in a and comes back to life three days later. And it's amazing because sociologists will say, well, see, Christianity is just a copy of that. No, it's a copy of Christianity because God put the plan of, Christian, you know, of, of salvation before the foundations of the earth. Okay? We have a different perspective of it. The sociologist Nimrod. looks at oh, it. Nimrod, right? Nimrod, yeah. yeah. The sociologists look at it and say, well, look, see, the... You know, it was there long before Christianity. They look at the stories of Hercules, which, and if you look at the, if you've ever studied the mythology of Hercules, Hercules did everything that Jesus was going to do, in 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 his lifetime. So they go, see, Christianity is just a copy of of Hercules. You know, and the key point to this is the true story is the story that God gave man right from the beginning, Genesis. 3.15, when man sinned, God told him he had the plan right there that the woman would bear a child and from her seed would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would strike his heel. God had already in initiated the plan. He told them the plan. And they and I think they knew a lot more about the plan than we know. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been all these copies of it over the years. Satan knew the plan. So he had to put counterfeits. Even before the real showed up, he put the counterfeits in because he understood the plan. And so we've got to be careful with this. And God is out there saying, this is my plan. I'm uh, going to buy you back. I don't mean to. Another thing is they're going from mythology to astrology. That's the murals up here. If you're going to murals. They go from mythology. I couldn't figure out. Somebody smarter than me, I guess, came up with that. They go from mythology to astrology, and that's what the, the god to you know, uh, Atlas and all the different gods. That's uh, mythology of uh, the world being flat and all that stuff. Uh, Aristotle and uh, all the Homer and all that stuff. And then they, the Catholics wanted to keep it that old old school, you know, of being uh, Aristotle's uh, deal. And then the Reformation came, and then they changed. But see, the Greeks knew the world was round anyway, and yeah. the Egyptians knew the world was round. The intelligent, educated people knew the world was round. Well, they knew pi. You know, they knew well. They knew they knew mathematics. They knew trigonometry. They knew the they knew the world was round. And Columbus knew the world was round. Columbus had no doubt that the world was round. His sailors didn't know the world was round, yeah. but he was an educated person. He knew the world was round. Big serpents and all that. You know, well, there were, there, I believe there were large serpents in the water, and there may still be, but with our te modern technology, we make so much noise they run and hide, or swim and hide. Uh, yeah, exactly. uh, but this, the Greeks knew exactly how big the earth was because they'd done, it, they'd done the mathematics on it. So, I mean, it, it, and it was sad that the, the Catholics moved things backwards as, many, as much as they did. The, the Bible tells us that the world is round. It's not, it's not something that, and that it hangs on nothing in the, in the, in the space. You know. But so many times, Satan has tried to deceive people. And he's used the Catholic Church's suppression of science to, to really hurt Christians in this day and age. He uses the Catholics... Uh, crusades in the in the in the, in the promised land of Israel to hurt the Christians to this day. You know, there's been a lot of things that Satan has used to hurt God's witness, and it's sad. And we can't deny that they happened. Now, I will deny necessarily that the Christian that the Catholicism was a Christian church during that period of time, because they didn't they had no no concept of Jesus and sacrifice and 
and his love and his mercy. It was all works and you, you know, and, and donations. Give donations. Yeah, you know, buy, buying buying absolution for people by just you know spending yeah. the money. Confession. You know, they go to confession. Uh, but you know, it has caused great problems. Now, what do I say? Every Catholic is not a Christian. No, I will never say that. But the, the Catholic Church, as a whole, does not teach Christianity. And uh, you know, especially once you get past first commission, uh, uh, confession, which I've already told you, first confession is all about Jesus. After that, it's all the doctrines of the Catholic Church that get you into this other stuff. But in first confession, you have enough to know that Jesus is the Savior. He was born. He died for your sins. And then after that, they don't talk about him anymore. It's all Mary and the apostles and the doctrines of the church. And so there are Catholics that are Christians. And then there are Catholics that aren't Christians, just as there are in every church. You know, are some Mormons Christians? Yes, some of them probably are Christians. They actually believe in Jesus as the way. Are most of them Christians? No. Most of them believe in works. And the unfortunate thing is that there are people that aren't saved in real strong Christian churches. Some Christian churches more are unsaved than, than not, and even a, but even in a very good Bible preaching, teaching church, there are going to be individuals in that church that aren't saved. Jesus told us that the wheat would, that the tares would go with the, with the wheat. And he says at the end, he'll separate them. He's talked about the goats and the, and the sheep, and he says at the end, they will separate them. We already know very clearly that non-Christians will be in his church trying to hurt it, trying to, to make it have a bad testimony. Mm -hmm. The key for us is to be able to teach the gospel, get into the word, know the word, become real, and hopefully, you know, there'll be more good than bad. And in, and the more the church preaches the word of God and, and, his, and, and salvation being a gift of God, the less tares and goats that will be in that church, but you will still have them. And there are some churches that are almost all tares because that's how much they've rejected the word of God. There are certain denominations that have gotten so far liberal that I would have a hard time thinking that there's anybody saved in their church because they just don't take the word of God for what it is. And that's not trying to judge them. It's just saying it is what it is. If you're not teaching the word of God, people aren't going to get saved. If you're teaching God's word, then they'll get saved. And many of these churches have been taught that the word of God is just a bunch of fables and fairy tales and it doesn't mean anything. It's not real. Uh, if you remember when we had Russ Miller out here doing the, the presentation on creationism, he said the very same thing. He, there's churches where he cannot go into, will not have him come and teach that, that Genesis 1 through 11 are correct. And I know that that's a fact. I've seen it. I've been told the same thing, and I'm going, no, I've got to believe the whole word of God or it's not, not worth it. And I haven't stayed long in a church like that. But if you can't believe the first, the first verses of, and chapters of Genesis, then what are you believing in? Well, what about a church that believes in the Old Testament and uh, basically thinks it wasn't changed for the New Testament as far as... We've got denominations like that. They live in so much legalism that, they, yeah. that Jesus isn't the answer. Okay, uh, and there's there's lots of I would say cults in that area that say that you know Jesus really isn't the answer. He's enough to get you saved, but you've got to keep yourself. That's the Judaizers that we've been talking about that Paul had to deal with. You know, Paul only gave you part of the lesson. Jesus is good. He's okay, but you know he kind of gets you at the door. But you've got to do all these things to stay in the door or go through the door. And again, it's that idea of not the gospel. They represent tares. They represent the tares. You've got to do all these, all these things. Now, am I saying that law is bad? Absolutely not. The law is good. It comes from who God is. But the law is not going to get us into heaven, and it will not keep us in heaven. And so we've got to be careful about that. Now, and I've said this over and over. The more I get to know God, the more he changes who I am, the more, the more I'm changed by him, the more I'm going to be like him. And when I become like him, the more I'm going to keep his laws. Not because I'm forcing myself to keep the laws, but because I'm becoming like him and who he is is who the law 
is representing. So I will keep the law more and more. I will be faithful to coming to church every week and every time that it opens up just because he wants me to be with his people. I am going to be truthful because he is truthful. I'm going to be loving because he is loving. I'm going to honor him on his day and just rest on his day and put my attention on him because I love him so much because of who he's making me to be. Not because he's saying, here's your list of rules to keep. <laughs> as soon as you're given this list of rules, whether it's official or unofficial, and most Christian churches have unofficial, and you get to know them real quick. If you're in the South, if you go to a South, most churches in the South, and, you, and as a man, you don't dress up in a three-piece suit and go to church, you will be looked at as a unbeliever and may not even be allowed in the in the door the women had to wear skirts and the women if you're not wearing a skirt or a dress uh-uh you're not coming in their door yeah. okay very unofficial but very real rules that they put on people the had to wear beanies remember the girls had to wear the yeah. beanies and the guys didn't have to wear a, a yarmulke but the, so, they didn't wear the men didn't but the girls did they yeah. had to wear the veil but you, but you understand what I'm saying. You know, there's sometimes there's some written. Some places actually have written rules. These are what you're going to do. Other churches have these kind of very unofficial rules, and you know when you break them. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden people are looking at you like, uh, you did what? You said what? You, you know, you know, you dared to go to to the casino to buy lunch at the at the at the restaurant. You know, that you you would have thought that you'd gone there to gamble. You know, heaven help you if you went there to gamble. Gary was a dealer down there, and he was uh, being, well, I heard a lot of bad things. Oh, how can he be a pastor if he's a blackjack dealer? You know, but, but the key on this all is, what are we doing for Christ? How are we representing Christ? And we live and fall before God. Our testimony should build up God, should build up who he is. And it's very important for us to be there. Jesus paid the price so that he can make us his, his brothers and sisters. And it says that he's the captain of their salvation, the champion of their salvation. And it's made perfect through sufferings, his sufferings. He's bought us with that suffering. And it says, both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And we've talked a lot about this. We know what sanctification is. That is, I'm being made perfect. And the person who's making me perfect is God himself. Okay? I am not trying to make myself perfect. It is God. And this is what it says. He that sanctifies is one with the one being sanctified. Okay? I am not the one sanctifying myself. God is sanctifying me. And I hammer on this, but we've got to get hold of this message that God is the one who does it. He's the one that changes me. We talked about baptism, being in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit changing us. We talked about adoption, where we get a brand new name, a brand new family, and we're made totally brand new, and God is the one that did that change. This verse here says that he is sanctifying us. You know, he makes us a new creation. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified, not I am crucifying myself, I am crucified. He does the changing, he does the crucifixion. He is the one when I, that renews my mind as I get his word into my mind. He is the one that changes my thoughts to think more like God. The closer I draw to him, the more I will be changed. And then the more I'm changed, the closer I should draw to him even yet, and he changes me even more. And we get into his word and he changes us. We get talking with other Christians and we, and we get changed because we're, we're, we're edified and built up. And we get into his word and he changes the way we think. He washes our mind out. And then he washes it deeper, deeper. And then he washes deeper yet. He's cleaning out who we are to the depths. And we've talked about this, how he keeps shining the light on our life. When we think we're, when we, when we're tended to think that we're there, we've cleaned everything else. He, he, puts the, he puts the light up to the next level and says, oh, here's some more stuff down there that you need to. And we get that out and he goes and he clicks the light to a little brighter and all of a sudden we see more garbage in our life. 
And he says, I'm the one that's changing it. I will declare my name upon my brethren in the midst of the church. I will praise them. He wants to praise us. Can you imagine this? God wants to praise us. He wants to sing our praise. Just as he did in the courts of heaven in Job. When he said, where have you been, Lucifer? Oh, I've been running to and fro around the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? He praised Job to Lucifer, and Lucifer's going, oh, yeah, I know him. I know him. You're protecting him. He's still doing that in heaven. He's still singing praises of his, his children in the courts of heaven and giving Satan permission to come test them and try them. Maybe not as bad as Job was tried. Maybe we don't have that much faith like Job did, but we still get tried. God will put somebody in our life that's hard to love. He'll give us the car breaking down and saying, what are you going to do now? He's going to give us financial troubles and say, well, are you going to trust me now? Are you going to still continue to, to honor me? Are you still going to continue to give me, give me the tithes? Are you still going to trust that I'm in charge? Paul said, I've learned to be content with much and with little. Yeah. And we think about what Paul went through. There's times when he was a tent maker, making, making probably good income as a tent maker. And then there's times when he's shipwrecked and being stoned and having nothing. And he said, I've learned to be content because God was his fulfillment. God met his needs. Whether much or little, he met the needs. And Jesus is saying, I gave all for you. I am the one that satisfies you. I am the one that keeps you. I am the one that changes you. We are in Christ. Picture of baptism being in Christ. We wrap ourselves, and I've told you the picture of this is the idea of falling into a luxurious robe and wrapping it around you. And Christ wraps around us. Anybody looking on from the spirit world sees Jesus. Inside, we're still who we are, but God is changing us inside that perfection. And he's going to keep changing us. And it is a powerful thing, and this is how we get our changed life. It's not striving and struggling and working hard and, and battling to be a good person. It is surrendering to God and saying, God, just change me. I am engulfed in you, and I want to become like you. And the more time we spend with God, the more we become like him. And the more we spend with his people, the more we become like him. And we get into his word. We spend time. We listen, we listen to things that are edifying and building up. We listen to Christian messages. We listen to Christ, good Christian music. We spend time with God's people. We spend time with God, and he changes us. And you look back on your life and say, wow, look at all these different changes, and I'm not struggling to do it. It's all God. All God changing me. All right. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that you are in love with us, that you're going to care for us, that you're going to continue to change us to be more and more like you. Lord, help us to always look at who you are and what you are to us and help us to become more and more like you and help us to follow you in all that we do. Help us to get more into your word, more into your teaching, more time with you in prayer. Help us to just surrender so that you can change us more and more. In your son's name, amen. amen.